Today's passage comes from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5a, that is uh, the first part of verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with the humans. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be moaning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the word of the Lord. So today is the last Sunday of this year, 2021. And as the new year, 2022 is dawning, another year for the Lord on earth and in heaven. Just as we sang in, uh, in the hymn this morning, let us take this Sunday morning to ponder about what God says beyond the new year, about new heaven and new earth that are to come in the end, which is only the beginning of the blessed eternity. Let me first give you a brief introduction to the book of Revelation. First, it is a letter. So in the heading of the letter, chapter 1, verse 4, the author that is sender, is identified, and that is John. Even though scholars do not agree if this is Apostle John or some other elder named John. Then the recipient is of the letter is identified, and that is the Christian community represented by the seven churches in the later part of the first century, namely the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Tiatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They were located in the province called Asia in the Roman Empire, also known as the Roman Asia, which is present-day Turkey. Second, it is also prophecy. So John is reporting what he saw and heard in his vision regarding what is to come using vivid metaphors and images. Third, it is at the same time an apocalypse, which is a literary genre featuring an imminent end of the time and world as we know them. The word apocalypse is a Greek word, in fact, and it literally means revelation in English. So this book is an apocalypse or revelation from God who was and is and is to come. And it is revealed to John, his servant, to be written for the church, that is, the people of God. It is written not to scare or frighten people, but first to motivate them, to change their way of life and turn to God. And second, to exhort and encourage them to remain faithful to God with the hope of an everlasting glory with God. Because in the end, those who remain faithful to God will live in perfect fellowship with God 
and his immediate presence in blessed eternity. What this book is not is a mystical book written in secret codes with hidden meanings or messages, as often portrayed in Hollywood movies and pop culture books. On the other hand, however, we should not take the descriptions of the, vis the visions and images of this book literally, because they are mostly metaphors and symbols. They may sound strange to our modern ears, but they were commonly used expressions at the time it was written, that was at the end of the first century. So they were readily recognized and understood by the first and second century audiences. For example, the name Babylon in this letter refers to Rome or Roman Empire because Babylon has been used as a symbol for Rome in Jewish apocalyptic literature decades before this letter was written. Apostle Peter also uses Babylon to refer to Rome in 1 Peter 5.12. We also need to know the social context in which this letter was written. The Christians were in a difficult and hostile environment with both Roman and Jewish wars against them. There had not yet been systematic persecution of Christians up to the time of John's writing this letter, but persecution has indeed begun, and it would only intensify. Not only that, um, they were living in the midst of the idolatrous emperor worshiping the Roman world, and some churches were already on the verge of losing their Christian identity. Like the churches in Ephesus and Laodicea, while other churches were in a mixed condition at best, with some good things, but also with some serious problems. So this letter is urging and exhorting the churches to remain faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ to the end. Now today's passage, the first five verses of chapter 21, is considered not only the most important part of the book of Revelation, but also the most significant passage of the entire Bible, because this is the beginning of the end, that is, the finale of the Bible, to which entire books of the Bible have pointed. What are the entire books of the Bible about? It is about the whole history and story of God and his people, though it is more than just the combination of the history of God's salvation of his people and the story of the special relationship between God and his people. It does make one big picture, however, so let us take one mini survey of the Bible to see where we are in this great picture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And he put humans in charge over all other creation of his. His first humans, Adam and Eve, were living in the Garden of Eden in the presence of God. But then they wanted to become like gods themselves. So they disobeyed God. As a result, sin and death entered the world. But even from that moment of the fall of Adam and Eve and their removal from his presence in the Garden of Eden, our gracious and graceful God had a divine plan of salvation. And he promised our spiritual forefathers of many blessings, including his presence. So the history of the people of God 
has been continually wrought with God's divine act of salvation, and it culminated in God sending His only Son, Jesus Christ. And through His death and resurrection, on our behalf, our sins are forgiven, we are made righteous in Christ, and we are reconciled to God. But the process of salvation is not yet complete. It will be complete when, after our death, we will be resurrected and glorified with Christ and dwell with God in His glorious presence as in the beginning. And today's passage shows us the glimpse of it. So let us look at it in detail, verse by verse. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The phrase new heaven and new earth also appears in Isaiah 65, 17, and 66, 22, where the Lord God says, I create new heavens and a new earth. In the Old Testament, sometimes the word heavens is in a plural form, heavens. It is because the word heaven in Hebrew is always in a plural form. And it is translated in English sometimes as a singular heaven, and sometimes as plural heavens. But the plural word heavens also represent or reflect rather ancient thoughts about the universe. The people in the ancient times, not just in Judaism, but also in the Hellenistic and Roman period as well, thought the universe consisted of seven heavens. Although the notion of the highest heaven, the seventh heaven, as a place where God sits upon his throne of glory is of Jewish origin. Now, some of you may be wondering, are the new heaven and new earth a brand new creation of God, perhaps in a new universe? The answer is, the new heaven and new earth refer to the renewed creation or transformation of the old heaven and old earth. Just as the new heaven and new earth in Isaiah refer to new creation, or renewed creation. The theme of recreation or renewed creation is reflected in other Jewish apocalyptic literature in which the old heaven and the old earth will be miraculously renewed, restored, and transformed in the end time by the Lord God. That means the first heaven and the first earth, that is the same as the old heaven and the old earth, will not be completely destroyed or demolished out of its existence. Instead, it will be renewed, restored, and transformed. It is just as Apostle Paul says about new Christians, um, and he referred to Christians as a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Sure, there will be both continuity and discontinuity between the old and the new. Whatever is good and holy will continue, perhaps made better. And whatever is corrupt and bad will discontinue. It will be completely restored and transformed to good and holy. At the end of verse 1, it says, The sea was no more. I don't know about you, but when I think of the sea, what comes to my mind is the blue and turquoise water, the white sand by the beach, and all the nice and pleasant things about the sea. 
But the sea in the ancient times was associated with the abyss, the deep and dark unknown, and was therefore a negative symbol of chaos and cosmic evil. So the sea in this verse represents metaphorically the afflictions and threats under which the people of God suffered. So it should be discontinued. Therefore, the sea is no more. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The term New Jerusalem does not appear in the Old Testament, but nevertheless, it comes from the Old Testament concept of a restored and purified city, Jerusalem. For example, Jerusalem is referred to as the holy city in Isaiah 48, 2, 52, and verse 66. And there was a tendency in the early Jewish literature to use the term the holy city to refer to Jerusalem. And here in verse 2, New Jerusalem is called the holy city. Jerusalem has another name. This is, uh, that is the city of the Lord in Isaiah 60, 14. It is also called the city of the living God in Hebrews 12, 22. And here in the book of Revelation, in 3, 12, New Jerusalem is called the city of God. So as the holy city of God, New Jerusalem symbolizes the restored and renewed Israel in terms of the people and the place and the presence of God. First, New Jerusalem symbolizes the people of God because it is a community of Christians that is the church. And these are completely redeemed, restored, and transformed people of God. Second, New Jerusalem symbolizes the physical place where God and his people dwell. You may be wondering where that is. Notice that New Jerusalem is described as coming down out of heaven. That is, New Jerusalem is not in heaven, but on the new earth, in the midst of God's new creation. In the book of Ezekiel, he describes a future city where God's presence is, just like New Jerusalem, and it is located on the earth, in the midst of the restored land of Israel. And in the following section, from 21.9 to 22.9, a very detailed and elaborate description of New Jerusalem is given, with all its details, like the streets of gold and the pearly gates. Third, New Jerusalem symbolizes the sphere where the immediate presence of God is. It is just like the Holy of Holies in the tent or tabernacle and later temple, which symbolizes where God's presence was in the Old Testament. So it is no coincidence that the above-mentioned city described in Ezekiel which is just like New Jerusalem, is named Yahweh is there. Yahweh is the name of the Lord. Another description of New Jerusalem here is a bride adorned for her husband. The expression is from the passage again from Isaiah 61 and 62, where bride is a metaphor for the people of Israel, which signifies the people of God. In Isaiah 61.10, God himself is described as clothing Israel with salvation and righteousness, just as a bride is adorned with jewels. It means then that the people of God that make up New Jerusalem, indeed the people that, made right, that are made righteous and saved by God. Verse 3, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humans. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself with, with them as their God. Again, the dwelling place of God signifies the presence or the place of God's presence. The term dwelling place in the original word means tent or tabernacle, and it is the same word used for the tabernacle of God in the Old Testament. As you may know very well, throughout the journeys of the Israelites in the wilderness, God was with them, but in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. And when God's presence was in the tabernacle, the glory of God, the bright light manifesting his presence, filled the tabernacle. That means New Jerusalem will also be filled with the glory of God because his presence is there. And that's why it says in 22.5 that in New Jerusalem, night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun because the Lord God will be their light. There is one thing very different, however, about God's presence in the Old Testament compared to that in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, tent, tabernacle, or a temple is where the presence of God is in the midst of these people. Because God is holy, but the people are not. So a physical boundary in the form of a tabernacle or temple was needed to keep the unholy people away or separated from the holy God, lest people will die. Unfortunately, abominations were committed even in the temple. So God's presence left the temple, and the prophet Ezekiel saw in his vision the glory of God leaving the temple in Ezekiel 10. And soon afterwards, Jerusalem fell to the hands of the Babylonians, and the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. The Israelites rebuilt the temple in 70 years later, in 516 BC, but the glory of God's presence did not return to the temple again. Nevertheless, God's promise of his presence still stands, and he reaffirms his promise over and over again throughout the Old Testament, most notably in Ezekiel, the Lord God says in Ezekiel 37, 27, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. It is repeated in Ezekiel 43, 7, and Ezekiel sees in his vision the glory of God filling the temple again in 43, 5. In the New Testament, however, there is no reference to the temple as the place of God's presence. It is because God's promise of his presence has begun to be fulfilled through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. His name, as we all know, is Emmanuel, God with us. And after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have direct access to God. So we can come to the presence of God through we see him only dimly and indirectly and not face to face, as Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. The promise of God's presence will be completely fulfilled when, after the final judgment, we as God's people will dwell with our God in his immediate presence and in perfect fellowship with God in New Jerusalem. 
Also, because God will be dwelling in the midst of his fully redeemed, restored, and transformed people, there will no longer a need for a separate physical temple in New Jerusalem. Thus, John says in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be moaning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here, Isaiah 25.8 is quoted almost verbatim, which says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face. It is one of the most powerful images of God as a very personal, caring, and empathetic God. And he's not a aloof uh, deity, but he really cares about us, and he's an intimate God who wants to have a relationship with us as our God and we, and we as his people. Only someone very close and intimate can touch your face and wipe tears away from your eyes. And because he wants to uh, be our God, have a relationship with us and we as his people, he sanctifies us, makes us holy so that we can dwell with him as his people and he as our God. And our God knows our weak human frame because he created us. And not only that, he can sympathize with our deep human emotions, sufferings, and pains because he was incarnated in the human form and being born in the human flesh, experienced human sufferings and pains, and he wept and mourned just like us. Remember, he wept over the death of his beloved Lazarus before he resurrected him. But all forms of sufferings, either death, mourning, crying, or pain, will be no more, just as the sea that symbolizes chaos and evil will be no more in God's new creation. Isaiah also prophesied similarly in Isaiah 35, 10, and 51, 11, which says, Sorrow and sighing will flee away, and the people of God will have everlasting joy as they enter the holy city. Also, according to Isaiah 65, 17, all sufferings and afflictions would not only pass away, but also not be remembered or come to our mind. So there will be no PTSD either. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The one seated in the throne is God himself. In a similar passage in Isaiah 43, 19, it is clearly identified as the Lord God who says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. The theme of new creation in the sense of renewal in verse 1 is repeated here. So making all things new does not mean that God is newly creating something out of nothing, even though he could very well do that. But it means the process of recreation or renewal by which the old is transformed into the new. So in summary, these five verses tell us that at the end time, which is only the beginning of the glorious, blessed eternity, the redeemed, restored, and transformed people of God will dwell in New Jerusalem, the holy city of God, as the holy community of God, in the immediate presence of God, in perfect fellowship with God, 
in the midst of the renewed, restored, and transformed creation in everlasting gladness and joy. And that is the complete fulfillment of God's promises to our spiritual forefather, Abraham, who faithfully trusted that God will bring about, and indeed bring it to completion, what he has promised, namely his presence, his relationship with us, and blessings through Abraham's offspring, in promise through faith, even our Lord Jesus Christ. It is because our God is a faithful God, and his steadfast love endures forever. So how are we to apply this to us today? First, remain faithful to God. As mentioned earlier, the purpose of this letter, as well as this passage, is to encourage Christians to greater faithfulness in their present world, in their given circumstances, knowing what is at stake. Though we are about two millennia apart from when the letter was written, not much has been changed in terms of living in the increasingly secular and idolatrous world. So we should strive all the same to remain faithful to God and be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ our Lord in our present world and in our present circumstances. Let me paraphrase the words of encouragement and warning given in verses 7 and 8, which follows this passage. Those who gain victory over against the evil, that is, all that is opposed to God, will have a share in this renewed creation with life eternal. But the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will be condemned and perished forever. Second, be mindful of God's creation. There is this dualistic thinking in popular Christian culture that at death, we leave this evil physical world behind and go to be with Lord in heaven in a kind of spiritual existence in a spiritual realm. But the book of Revelation shows us a different picture. Even though God's people are in God's heavenly presence right after their physical death, they await the day when they will be resurrected and live in their final dwelling place, that is New Jerusalem, the city of God, that will come down from heaven and be established on the new earth, under new heaven, in the midst of God's new creation. We may call it Garden of Eden 2.0. And our physical bodies, as well as the physical world that God created, will not be discarded as worthless, but resurrected, restored and transformed to fit God's renewed creation, and we will glorify God in our renewed body. We have a glimpse of such in Jesus' resurrected body. And this should also encourage us to care more about God's creation even now. After all, God put us in charge of all other creation and creatures of his. Therefore, we should be faithful and responsible stewards over his creation and not abuse or misuse it. Third, rejoice in the hope of eternal blessing and share the gospel. When a believer passes away, we Christians say he or she went home to be with the Lord. We have such assured hope of salvation and of dwelling in the 